With perspective, we get to see issues, problems, solutions, and thoughts in a different light. A problem might end up seeming bigger or small. With perspective, the solutions might end up being infinite or limited. Chemshabongo is a podcast that seeks to trigger a change in how you perceive things, how you react to events, and how you approach things that you do. We do this by hosting a number of voices, presenting their different perspectives. For the last part of the show, we'll be having an excerpt of Not Here to Huru, read by Obi Obiero Diambo. By the end of this episode, we hope that you find more power in what is behind your eyes and stop focusing solely on what is in front of them. This is Chimshabongo. Hello, I am Obi Obirudhyambo. I'm a writer, theater practitioner, strategic communication scholar, and social commentator. In this edition of Chemshabongo, I address myself to the global climate crisis and how it's perceived in our villages in Africa. Away from the urban areas and into the villages where climate is more direct determinant of life, you will hear people lament how climate has become unpredictable. Seasons are no longer clear-cut. Farmers do not know when to till the land and plant their crops. Pastoralists find themselves facing longer periods of drought and shorter periods of rainfall such that animal pasture does not recover. As livelihoods get disrupted, people desperate to survive take to activities like chopping down trees and burning charcoal and others in places where the rivers still flow farm right up to the riverbeds and spray their crops with chemicals because the invasion of pests is ever so common. As the cycle continues and life gets harder, they fail to join the dots. The environmental degradation and how it's connected to the erratic weather pattern is not made obvious. Climate change meetings are held in urban areas, in hotels and international gatherings that exclude the masses. Activists hold protests along urban streets and discussions about reducing carbon emissions do not involve those in the rural areas who could make a difference and who are impacted the most. National tree planting campaigns have fallen by the wayside. The building of gabions to stop soil erosion that characterized the Moy era are no long forgotten. Climate change experts say that it is still possible to reverse the damage to the globe by healing the earth. And the best way of doing that is by planting trees and harvesting as much water as we can. Since 17 of the 20 nations most vulnerable to climate change are in Africa, yet the continent emits less than 4% of the global greenhouse gas emissions, in contrast to China's 23%, the US's 19%, the European Union's 13%, Africa, through its leaders, need to mount a moral crusade to demand that these high-rate polluters facilitate and finance Africa's healing of the globe through massive programs of reforestation. During the coronavirus outbreak, the West had the upper hand in providing drugs and vaccinations. But in this climate change crisis, 
tables are turned. We have the vaccine to save the world's climate and we need to charge a good fee for it. Africa's leadership needs to put this on the table and negotiate from a position of strength. Public education campaigns to educate the rural folk supported with financial incentives to empower the masses to join the dots are long overdue. Grassroots movements in all villages in Africa and in schools need to be reignited to plant trees. Africa will be doing a service to the globe and just as the coronavirus vaccines were sold to Africa, so should Africa sell the climate crisis vaccine. African leadership through the African Union needs to adopt a collective approach so that the continent comes out stronger. The climate crisis offers Africa a chance to play a leadership role. The time is now. Let us talk about the shutter of the forest. One of the fascinating stories from the history of the British is the existence for a long period of a document known as the shutter of the forest. This document, which was promulgated in 1217, was a companion document to the better known Magna Carta. The Magna Carta, as you may recall, dealt broadly with aspects of civil rights. The shutter of the forest, however, sought to create a framework for the protection of commonly shared resources. These include the rivers, the hills and the mountains, and indeed the trees and the forests. But probably the more important lesson from this document is the value that we need to attach to the commonly held resources. Within the urban environment that are now the home to most of us, these spaces would include the streets, the common crowds, and parks. Of course, they also include any rivers, river valleys, and forests as may be available. Our common resources also include any animal life in our environment, like birds, forest mammals, like monkeys, and even reptiles and insects. They are part of the ecosystem. I will go further and state that the commons also include the vistas that exist. If, for example, in the city of Nairobi, we are able to enjoy a view of Mount Kenya every so often, or Mount Kilimanjaro, this has to be considered as a resource for all of us. These common resources must be protected at all costs. You may ask why. It is simple. The quality of our lives in the urban areas is premised on the quality of our shared experience. It is in the common resource, not in the private domains, that our lives find meaning and richness. A critical aspect in urban management is the designed quality and access given to common resources. Kenya needs its own shutter of the forests. We need firm guidelines on how to manage the shared species and other resources. Today, the most clear evidence of the breakdown of social order is found in the way we use common space. The phenomena of turning public space to private use has been normalized, and this is affecting the quality of life of the entire urban population. Just take a closer look at what happens on our road reserves, and you will see why. These spaces have been turned into commercial space, 
And in the process, they have crowded out the pedestrian and turned the experience of walking through some parts of town into a harrowing ordeal. This cannot be sustained without a huge cost to society. What happens in these spaces will set the tone to the attitudes we take to other spaces, including the offices we work in. As a matter of urgency, this country needs a national charter of urban development to guide all levels of decision-making in the protection of the shared space. Such a charter should be anchored in a deep understanding of how we wish to express ourselves in this common space. What is our sense of dignity? What dividend goes to the most vulnerable members of our society? How should we eliminate stress in the use of common space? We need to guide ourselves clearly on how to organize for commerce, especially the small traders that we definitely need in our neighborhoods. We need to think deeply about transport within the towns and between them and offer clear guidelines on how to organize transport hubs. Those are just two out of many areas we can structure through a national charter. Most important, let us move away from the current fixation with homegrown ideas which lack the input of available expertise. And now for this week's excerpt of Not Here to Huru, read by Obi Obiero Diambo. The first time I saw a bicycle was the day we children were given baskets of simsim and maize to take to the Kadimo Indian Shopping Center, about 12 miles from our home. Chief Olulo Nyadenda, in a white kanzu, rode by on his bicycle, passing us so quickly that I was reminded of a snake. He was followed by the district commissioners flashing past, and they went on to the shops ahead of us. There, I had my first glimpse of an Indian. It was astonishing to hear an Indian speaking in the Luo. His body looked as soft as a baby's when it is newly born. When the Indian came to carry my basket, I thought he would never manage to lift it. His body looked so soft. The simsim I carried to the shop fetched about 25 cents, and with this money, I bought a length of material to be used as a loincloth. When I returned home, I did not, of course, wear it to milk the cows. I took it off and hung it on a wooden peg outside the granary. While I was milking, an animal came along and ate my loincloth. I had my first piece of clothing for less than a day. My attempt to calculate my age is associated with clothing. My parents were not educated and they did not register the date of my birth, so I had to work backwards to estimate it. I remember an old man, Elijah Bonio, had a khaki jumper with a red button flap at the back. Years later, when I met Bonio, he told me that he had this jersey in 1918. At the time I remember him in the jersey with the flap, I had begun to look after animals, which would have made me a small boy of six or seven years. I can work out my age by association with other events, of course. Immediately after the 1914-1918 war, there was a severe famine. My mother went away to search for food, and I was left to look after my younger sister and small brother. 
I fetched vegetables from the bush and cooked them until my mother returned. I must have been at least six years old to have been able to take charge until our mother returned, and as the famine was between 1918 and 1919, I think I was born between 1911 and 1912. My mother told me I was born during the short rains, which begin normally between September and December. So I placed my birth at October 1911. My home village, Nyamira Kango, is in Sakwa location, central Nyanza district, near Lake Nyanza, formerly Lake Victoria. We in Kenya dropped that name in 1964, which is the water link between Kenya, Uganda, and Tanganyika. Nyanza province in the west of Kenya lies across the equator. To our west are the lake and Uganda. To the east, the Rift Valley province with its thick white supplement, and to the south, Maasai land and Tanzania. The former Nyanza, which included Western Province and Kericho, has always been known as Kenya's granary and labor pool. The Lua are more agricultural than other Nilotic people, but we keep many cattle and fishing is important along the shores of the lake. Five peoples live in Nyanza. Our neighbors are the Baluya, Kisi, Kuria, and the Kipsigis, who live along the high ridges. My great-grandfather was Rapondi, son of Wenwa. He fathered four sons, among them my grandfather, Raila. According to our clan history, Raila was not a well-to-do man, nor in fact was his father, nor others further back in our lineage. My father passed down to me the story that Raila was too poor to afford cattle for a wife. He worked on his plot of land to grow just enough to feed himself. He was lucky to meet a widow who had her children in her husband's home and come to relatives in Sakwa. My grandfather decided to bury her because for such a woman, the dowry was low. Listen to Chimsha Bongo on our website, acute.co.ke. Chimsha Bongo is an acute media production.